I want to encourage you not just to follow along as I read, but to keep this passage open for our entire time together as everything we say, we want to expound from the word. John 12, 12 to 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become a villain. If you recognize that quote, then you've probably seen the movie The Dark Knight, which is one of my favorites. Uh, that famous line was uttered by a character named Harvey Dent. Harvey Dent was a bright and up-and-coming district attorney, and Harvey Dent was determined to uproot all of the deep-seated corruption in the city of Gotham. Now, initially, he was successful, but when Harvey's efforts weren't enough, the uh, corruption actually corrupted him. And the line he uttered, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become a villain, that actually became a self-fulfilling prophecy for Harvey Dent. This hero became a villain. But before word got out of what Dent had done, the Batman stepped in. You see, he took the blame for what Harvey Dent did. In an act of true heroism, he was willing to be regarded as the villain. So it's almost as if Harvey Dent's sin was credited to Batman and Batman's goodness was credited to Harvey Dent. Oh, Christopher Nolan doesn't know that he preached the gospel in this movie. <laughs> you see, the people of Gotham wanted Dent as their hero but they really needed Batman as their hero. And in this way, Batman bears some shadows of Jesus. No, he doesn't bear those shadows in every way, but in our passage today, he, it shows at least one way, that just as Batman wasn't the hero they wanted, but the hero they needed, so Jesus is the king that is, he is better than the king that you want. He is the king that you need. We see that today from our passage, and we'll walk through our passage in three steps. John 12, 12 to 19, we'll see the king that was promised. We'll see the king that was misunderstood. And finally, we'll see the king that you really need. My friend, I pray that this portion of God's word would correct any misguided assumptions that you have about who Jesus is. I pray that this portion of God's word would give you a renewed appreciation of your savior who is the humble servant king. I pray as a result of seeing Jesus for who he really is, that all of your fears would be relieved. So three steps. Step one, 
the king that was promised. Let me just kick this off like this, ask you a question. What's the Bible all about? What's the Bible all about? This sounds like a foundations question, doesn't it? What's the Bible all about? You see, the way you answer that question is gonna affect how you read every small part of the Bible. What's the Bible all about? The way you answer that question will affect your entire perspective on life. What's the Bible all about? The way you answer that question is going to affect what you think about God. What's the Bible all about? The way we answer that question as a church is going to affect what type of sermons we preach and what kinds of studies we teach. What's the Bible all about? The animation studio Pixar is known for films like Toy Story and The Incredibles and Monsters, Inc., When Pixar crafts a story for one of their movies, they start with really the same formula every time. The formula goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a blank. Every day, blank happened. One day, blank happened. Because of that, blank happened. Because of that, blank happened. Until finally, blank happened. So could we answer what's the Bible all about using that formula from Pixar? Well, let's try Remember, the formula begins like this. Once upon a time, blank. Now, this is not to imply that the Bible is a fairy tale. We're just using the formula for an exercise. Once upon a time, God created the heavens and the earth. And he created everything that fills the heavens and the earth. He created the stars and the planets. He created the sun and the moon. He created the plants and the animals. And he created the crowning work of his creation, people, made in his own image. Every day, people enjoyed the goodness of God's creation, and they enjoyed the goodness of their creator. Every day, people reflected God's character. Every day, people related to God unlike any other creature. And every day, people ruled over God's place on God's behalf. One day, the serpent tempted God's people. He questioned God's word. He questioned God's goodness He got the people to think that they could do a better job at being God than God can do. So the people rebelled against God's kingship and the people rejected God's word. Because of that, the people were no longer close to God. Their evil separated themselves from the good God. They were banished from God's presence. They were subject to death. There was no way back. And their rebellion, well, their rebellion affected the whole world around them. And it affected all the people who came after them. And because of that, God gave mercy. He didn't treat the people as their rebellion deserved. He made them a promise that he would send someone to crush the serpent. He would send someone to reverse the curse. He would send someone to bring them back into his presence. Now, there would be people who came after them who were thought to be God's great snake crusher. Those like Noah or those like Abraham, those like the people of Israel, those like King David. God made promises to each one of these. But none of them proved good enough. In some way, all of them did what their ancestors did rebel against God, and reject his word. Until finally, after thousands of years, 
After failure, after failure, God sent his one and only begotten son. And unlike those who went before us, he never rebelled against his father. He never rejected the word. And he would crush the serpent. He would bring his people back into God's presence and he would rule God's people in God's place. Do you want to make sense of all the commotion on Palm Sunday? The people gathered at the Mount of Olives on this day realized, however imperfectly they realized it, they realized in some way we are witnessing the until finally moment that we've been waiting for for so long. That's what you're reading in John 12, 12 to 13. The people knew that, the God, that God promised a king, Genesis three fifteen, that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. They knew Genesis 12, 3, that Abraham's descendant would bless all the nations of the earth. They knew Genesis 49, 10, that a king would arise from the tribe of Judah that will reign over all the peoples of the earth. They knew Numbers 24, 17, a star and a scepter will arise out of Israel. They knew 1 Samuel 7, that one of King David's descendants would sit on the throne forever. These promises seemed lost. Until finally, Jesus arrives, riding on a donkey. So what's the Bible about? Well, the Bible is for you, but the Bible is not about you. It's not about how you can be more courageous and kind and honest and trustworthy. No, the Bible is about Jesus. And Jesus will make you those things. But the Bible isn't so much a moral guidebook as much as it is a rescue mission. And guess what, friend? You're not the one doing the rescuing. You're the one who needs to be rescued. That's actually really good news. Because I wonder if today you're in a season where you just seem stuck in a struggle. You've just had setback after setback, blow after blow. Maybe it's a depression that you can't shake. Maybe it's a despair that seems to so easily settle in. Maybe it's an addiction that seems to control you more than you control it. Maybe you're not even sure that you're a Christian. Like you haven't pushed all of your chips onto Jesus yet. But for some reason, you've hung around church for a while because life's been hard. Maybe you've finally been done in by all the bad news in the world and all the bad news in your life. You're ready to throw in the towel and say, what's the point? But if any of that's you, and probably something of that falls is true of us, If any of that's you, I'm not sure how much you need to be convinced that you and the world around you need to be rescued as much as you need to be assured that there is a rescuer. You can be assured of that from the king who rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And you know, by the way, this this might be another tool in your arsenal for your evangelism for how you can relate to people in your life who aren't Christians. You know that those people in your, in your life will have moments in their lives when they feel helpless and hopeless and hurt. Friend, those are opportunities for assurance. <laughs> those are opportunities when you don't really have to work very hard to convince them that they need rescuing. Those are opportunities for you to show that person that there is a rescuer, that he was promised and now he's here and that they can trust him. So first step we saw, the king was promised and now he's here. 
But there's a problem. The king is misunderstood. Three different groups misunderstand Jesus. The crowd misunderstands him. The disciples misunderstand him. And the Pharisees misunderstand him. It seems like the crowd in verse 12 is the same crowd from verse 9, at least largely so. Remember, these folks went to see Jesus in the nearby village of Bethany the day before. And not only did they go to see Jesus, remember, they also went to see Jesus' friend, Lazarus. And they must, have really, they must have verified that Lazarus really was a man who was dead and now actually alive, because why else would they have shown up the next day? Now, they hear that Jesus is on the move to the capital city of Jerusalem. And we're just five days out from the Passover feast, one of the major feasts on the Jewish calendar. The first century historian Josephus records that Jerusalem was a madhouse leading up to the Passover feast. Before the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, Josephus estimates that some 2.7 million people gathered in Jerusalem that week. Oh, this had the potential to be a large crowd indeed. The crowds begin to honor Jesus by waving palm branches. You know, this is why Christians have historically called this Sunday Palm Sunday. Now, my guess is that when the Browns score a touchdown this afternoon, you're not going to reach for your palm branch and wave it in celebration. (laughs) So why would they do this back then? Great question. Well, the Old Testament tells us some things about it. Well, it tells us mainly that the palm branches weren't connected so much to the Passover feast Rather, they were connected more with the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, that feast commemorates how God sustained his people when they lived in the wilderness, living in tabernacles or tents. Actually, it's more recent history of Israel of that time that helps us know more about palm branches and why they would wave them. You see, around 100 years prior to Palm Sunday was the Maccabean Revolt in Jerusalem. Occupying forces from Syria were driven out and the temple was restored for the worship of God. And the leader of that revolt, Simon the Maccabee, was celebrated with music and he was celebrated, you guessed it, with the waving of palm branches. This turned the palm branch into something of a national symbol for Israel. Excavators have even discovered how uh, palm branches were imprinted on coins from that time. So maybe it's something like this. Imagine if Jesus physically showed up in Cleveland this afternoon and people welcomed him by waving American flags. It might strike us as a little bit curious, maybe not the best reaction to Jesus being here. According to theologian Don Carson, he he says people waving palm branches for Jesus may well have signaled a nationalistic hope that a messianic liberator was on the scene. We see this kind of uh, dynamic pop up earlier in John in chapter six. Jesus feeds the 5,000 and what do the people want to do? They want to force him to be their king. Similar thing going on here. Now the crowds don't just wave the palm branches. They back up their actions with their words. They quote Psalm 118 and they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. A little background, Psalms 113 to Psalm 118 were traditionally sung as the Israelites made their way to the Passover feast in Jerusalem. Psalm 118 itself celebrates how God delivers an individual who was once rejected but now victorious. 
And this individual is welcomed back into Jerusalem and celebrated there. You can see how it would be appropriate for a time like this. Let's just take a closer look at that quote. Hosanna, you've probably heard this explanation before. It's a Hebrew word that means save now. But historians note how by that time it would really be a generic way to give someone praise. And traditionally, the next part of the quote, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, people would say that to one another. They would say that to each other as they were making their way on, onto the feast. It would impart a blessing to, to fellow pilgrims. But the people bless Jesus in a special way here. If you read Psalm 118, specifically what's quoted, verses 25 and 26, you'll notice that the people here in John 12 add something. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. That last part isn't part of Psalm 118. So clearly, they recognize Jesus as some type of Messiah figure, some type of king figure. And that's good, right? But what we are saying is that still these people misunderstand who Jesus actually is. Well, the misunderstanding is because they welcome Jesus really as someone who's going to solve all their political problems. They welcome Jesus as someone who will solve all their economic problems, all their social problems. And later on in verse 17, John says they come because they heard about the miracles Jesus did. So maybe we could piece together what they might be thinking as they're waving their palm branches and shouting their hosannas. Here is a guy who can finish what Simon the Maccabee started. Here is a guy who can finally break us free from the Roman shackles and return us to glory. You see, the crowd focuses so much on their country's problems that it blinds them to who Jesus really is. Do you think that can happen to Americans too? It's natural for you to have a special affection for the place where you're from. I'm not saying that you should be indifferent to our country's problems. I'm not saying you should be unaware of our country's problems. But when what fires you up the most is how bad inflation is and how bad our national debt is, when what fires you up the most is the state of our public schools, when what fires you up the most is how things just aren't how they used to be, when you're so intensely focused on those things, you risk the same misunderstanding as this crowd. You risk thinking that the country of America is the same thing as the kingdom of Christ. And it's not. Jesus is bigger than Israel. Jesus is bigger than Rome. Jesus is bigger than America. It's not just the crowd, though, who misunderstands Jesus. It's also the disciples. After we see palm branches wave, after we hear shouts of Hosanna, Jesus then hops on a donkey. Now, that might be random to us because, as one author writes, between the teeth and the ears and the hee-haw, we think of the donkey as the poor man's horse. And it's like the donkey knows that we think that about him because they're selectively uncooperative. Even the, the curse word equivalent for donkey is used to insult people for stupidity and incompetence. And yet here Jesus is riding on a donkey. 
Now, this choice might seem random to us, but it wouldn't be entirely random for the people back then. Donkeys could also be royal animals in Israel. For example, in the book of Judges, the sons of Jair and the sons of Abdon ride on donkeys. In the book of 2 Samuel, the sons of the king of David rode on mules. In the book of 1 Kings, chapter 1, King Solomon is inaugurated as a king on a mule or a donkey. And the passage John quotes from Zechariah 9 indicates that a future king will ride on a donkey. So it's not so much that Jesus' choice of animal would be random and out of nowhere to these people. It's just that it would be unexpected. The disciples didn't understand it. Because over the course of three years, the disciples have recognized the galvanizing power of Jesus, that this guy is a magnet for unprecedented crowds. And now he's performed his greatest miracle to date, raising Lazarus from the dead. And now he's entering a city that contains more people than he's ever been around. Translation, Jesus' star has never been brighter and the stage has never been bigger. With just one rally cry, with just one more miracle, Jesus could turn this large crowd of thousands to hundreds of thousands. And he could get all of them to drop their palm branches and pick up swords and spears very quickly and say, Rome, bring it. But instead of gallantly riding on a war horse, Jesus clumsily rides on a donkey. That's almost like entering a battle zone in an ice cream truck (laughs) instead of an armored tank doesn't seem like a very triumphal entry, does it? So you can see why the disciples don't understand. They see Jesus as a king. They just don't know what kind of king Jesus is yet. You see, the disciples have already decided in their minds who Jesus should be. And that keeps them from seeing who Jesus actually is. Friends, do you think people can still do that today? Already decide who Jesus should be? And that keeps them from seeing who Jesus actually is. Here are some possibilities of what people decide Jesus should be like. These aren't original to me, but I find them to be really good. Maybe you've decided that Jesus should be someone like John Lennon. That he should say something like, all you need is love. That's all I care about, really. Not truth or anything like that. Love and peace, peace and love, oh, and spirituality. Maybe you've decided that Jesus should be like Zig Ziglar. He should say things like, I created you to succeed. You're going to win so much in life that your name's going to be Winnie Winterton. Success is in your future. Believe it and achieve it. I got your back, champ. Maybe you've decided that Jesus should be like Mr. Rogers. He should say something like, what I'm most concerned with, dear children, is that you be really nice to each other. Be careful that you never hurt anyone's feelings because all people just like you are my special little flowers. Maybe you've decided that Jesus should be like a cool dad. That he should say something like, yeah, I'm technically in charge here, but hey, I'm no buzzkill. Do whatever you want. I'm not going to punish you. I'm not lame. Maybe you've decided that Jesus should be like Rob Bell, who is a false teacher. He should say something like, Every, everyone's going to be just fine. Everyone goes to heaven when they die. Any other view of me would be toxic, and I'm not a toxic monster. Maybe you've decided Jesus should be like Richard Simmons. 
He should say something like, you're doing a great job. You can do it. I believe in you. You're beautiful. You're strong. You're perfect. Maybe you've decided that Jesus should be someone like Bernie Sanders. That he should say something like, I expect you to love your neighbor and I expect you to do, do that by supporting all government welfare programs, universal health care, higher taxes on the rich, higher minimum wage, and more environmental regulations. Maybe you've decided that Jesus should be like Ronald Reagan. That he should say, what I care most about is fiscal conservatism, smaller government, and your unalienable rights given by me to bear any firearm on your person, anytime, anywhere. Or maybe you've decided that Jesus should be like a genie. That he should say, you know, I'll just be chilling in heaven until you need something, okay? And then just say the magic words in Jesus' name and kazam, your wish is my command. (laughs) All joking aside, If like the disciples, you've decided already who Jesus should be, you'll misunderstand him and you won't see him for who he actually is. Now, there is one more group who misunderstands Jesus, and that's the Pharisees. Really no surprise there, is there? Verse 19, they say to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now, remember that the Pharisees and the chief priests have already hatched a plot to kill Jesus. And last week, we got a little closer look as to why they want to do this. Back in John 12, verse 11, it says, because many people were going away and believing in Jesus. Well, going away from who? Well, specifically, they were going away from the Pharisees and believing in Jesus. So for the Pharisees, what matters most isn't whether or not Jesus deserves praise. No, for the Pharisees, what matters most is whether or not they can hold on to their power. That kept them from seeing who Jesus is. Do you think people can still do that today? Maybe you or someone you know has a similar attitude. What matters the most isn't that Jesus rose from the dead. What matters most isn't if Jesus says, is who he says he is. No, what matters most is whether or not I have the power to control my life. That's what matters most. That I'm not gonna give up the power to be in control of my life. In translation, Jesus isn't gonna be my king. I am. So we see the king was promised and now he has arrived, but this king is misunderstood. The crowds think he's just a miracle working national liberator. The disciples, well, they still have ideas of Jesus being some type of warrior king. The Pharisees, they think Jesus isn't worthy of any praise whatsoever. So how do you go from misunderstanding who Jesus is to understanding who Jesus is? Well, I want you to look at verse 16. The hinge upon which the disciples turned from misunderstanding to understanding is when Jesus was glorified. So the question is, when was Jesus glorified? Well, we can be helped by a similar statement all the way back in John chapter two. If you'd like, you can flip there and see it for yourself. John two, verse 22. This is after Jesus referred to himself as the temple, the place where God meets man on earth. And Jesus says how he'll be torn down, this temple will be torn down and raised up three days later. 
It says the disciples didn't understand what Jesus says. That is, they didn't understand it until, verse 22, he was raised from the dead. That's when Jesus is glorified. Friends, this tells you that the hinge for understanding Jesus ultimately isn't his healings. The hinge for understanding who Jesus is ultimately isn't his teachings. No, the hinge for understanding who Jesus is ultimately is his death and his resurrection. Before this moment in John 12, it's like Jesus has been hesitant about drawing attention to himself. But now Jesus wants all eyes on him because he wants everyone to see the main thing he's about to do. Give his life as a ransom for many and take his life up again. Friends, when you've turned on that hinge, when you stand on the other side of the cross and the empty tomb, when you see Jesus glorified in that way, you will see that Jesus is far better than a mere national liberator like the crowds thought. You'll see what Matthew 28, 18 says, that Jesus doesn't just have authority over one nation, Jesus has authority over all the nations. You'll see that to be rescued and to be forgiven doesn't take belonging to one particular nation. No, you'll see that those from any nation can be rescued and forgiven if they belong to him. And we see this come to fruition in one of the last scenes of the Bible. We read about it earlier from Revelation 7. You can turn there if you want because it's really cool to see, actually. Revelation 7, starting in verse 9. The apostle John writes that he saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, check this, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus is far better than a mere national liberator. He is a worldwide savior. And the Pharisees spoke better than they knew, didn't they? The whole world will in fact go after Jesus. So when you stand on the other side of the cross in the empty tomb, when you see Jesus glorified in this way, only then can you go from misunderstanding to understanding. Only then, along with the disciples, you will realize that it's actually good news that Jesus arrives first on a donkey before he arrives on a war horse. Right, the context of the quote from Zechariah 9 talks about how this king riding on a donkey will bring peace to all the nations it talks about how the blood of God's covenant will set prisoners free. But the thing is, Jesus didn't stride into Jerusalem on a war horse, ready to shed the blood of his enemies in order to establish his kingdom. He will do that one day when he brings justice on earth. But first, he rides on a donkey, not, pre not prepared to shed the blood of his enemies but to shed his blood for his enemies. Not to establish his kingdom, but so that his enemies might even enter his kingdom. Oh, my friend, if you feel your brokenness, if you feel like God wants nothing to do with me, if you tremble under your guilt, if you despair at this world, fear not. Your king has come riding on a donkey. And he restores the peace you really need. Peace with God.
When you stand on the other side of the cross and the empty tomb, when you see Jesus glorified in that way, only then can you turn on the hinge of misunderstanding to understanding. And unlike the Pharisees, when you do that, you'll see that there is no one else worthy of praise besides Jesus. You'll recognize that it's worth giving up control of your life. It's worth stepping off the throne of your heart because that's what got you into this mess in the first place. But you'll realize you'll do that because Jesus is better than you ever thought. Because the one you give your life to is the same one who gave up his life for you. He's better than the king that you wanted. He's the king you need. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, your blood has washed away all of our sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath is completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. We were once your enemies, but now we are seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Oh, lead us to prize and treasure who you really are. Remind us that all of history is for your glory and that is for our good. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Amen.